This morning's sermon is called The Tale of True Characters. All right, A Tale of True Characters as we're in Daniel 6, but we're also going to stretch into Daniel chapter 7, which I'll talk more about a little bit later on. If we could get that next slide up, this is actually the final slide of the day. It's just going to stay up there for the rest of the sermon because it's going to carry some themes through the rest of my preaching. These are some ways as you read Daniel chapter 6 that you can see Daniel's characteristics. Here's a, a man of true character. He was excellent. He had an excellent spirit in him. Daniel was targeted in conspiracy, blameless in public, faithful in private, devoted in prayer, entrapped, silent in death, rejoiced in resurrection, unharmed in judgment, entrusted himself to God, and ultimately victorious. This is who Daniel was. And as we've been walking through the book of Daniel over these last five weeks, we've seen Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, take certain stands in the name of their God, showing actively their faith in Him. And Daniel has grown old. He's probably in his 80s by this point. He's nearing the end of his life, but he is experiencing, still experiencing the radical work of faith in Him. All right. Let's turn to Daniel, Daniel chapter 6, page 743 in the Bibles that are in front of you, if you want to turn there. There will be some interesting points that you might not expect in Daniel 6 and 7 this morning. So I would really encourage you to be have it in front of you on your phone or open it up if you can so that you can see those things. I'm going to read the entire chapter here, and you're going to see these characteristics of Daniel seen in this story, but I want to let the story carry the weight. Daniel chapter 6, starting in verse 1, it, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 state traps to be throughout the whole kingdom. If you were here last week, you remember that what has just happened is that the Babylonian Empire has been overthrown by the Persian Empire. Darius being the first ruler of that empire. And so Daniel has somehow kept his head above water. Maybe literally just kept his head in this transition of power. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing as tumultuous politically as one empire taking over another. And yet Daniel, who was one of the top men in the Babylonian empire, you're going to see somehow makes the transition into being one of the top men in the Persian empire as well. So again, chapter 6, verse 1, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, or governors, to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over those satraps, three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. When this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then, the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault was found in him. No error or any fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king, and they said to him, O oh, King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. When Daniel knew, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house 
where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem, he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, he pays no attention to you, king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. And the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you! And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And he came near to the den where Daniel was. He cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent His angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before Him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, Peace be multiplied to you, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For He is the living God enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Does that story shock you anymore? Or have you been numbed by hearing it so many times? Maybe reading it in kids' books where the lions are nice and cuddly too many times. This is a story that unashamedly boasts that God is a rescuing God. Two very important questions. There are, there are a lot of questions we could ask about this. But two very important questions that I think it's important for us to think on are, would I have done what Daniel did? Would you have done what Daniel did? 
Thursday night, I watched the movie Silence. Have you seen it? Or have you read the book? I'd encourage you to do both. Um, Silence came out in 2016. Martin Scorsese actually was the director. Um, it was based on a 1966 historical novel by Shusako Endo. And it's a historical novel, so it's based on history, but the characters are fictitious. The characters in this movie are Jesuit priests. They're not the only characters, but they're the main characters. And these Jesuit priests go to Japan. This is in the mid-1600s when to be a Christian was illegal and the rulers were violently opposed to anything but Buddhism in their land. And these two Jesuit priests go to find their mentor who had brought them up in the faith. And I'll let you know the rest of the story. You can read it yourself. But what I would say is that I needed to watch that movie this week. You may need to watch that movie because it presents martyrdom in a way that we don't often think about. And as far as I know, none of us in this sanctuary have participated in through our friends or family. None of us have had people that we are close to die for Christ. It's not part of our world, but yes, it is part of our world. It's, it's part of the world of a Pakistani sister who was accused by her Muslim co-workers out in the field for defaming the name of Muhammad. It is the world of Eritrean believers. You know where Eritrea is? Right by Ethiopia? Eritrean believers who are locked into containers, shipping containers, and left to roast in the Eritrean African sun. This may not feel like it's part of our world, but it is part of our world. And it is part of God's world. And that's part of the challenge of silence. is how we think through that painful reality in a broken world. And where is God in all of that? Would I have done what Daniel did? I have to be honest this morning, even looking at my last week, the way the Lord has challenged my heart in selfish, self-serving, prideful desires. And how it's so easy when I don't have those things met, and usually when they're not met immediately, that all of a sudden my heart turns sour and bitter. You might find this true of yourself, but I, I wrote this down. I compromise much more easily on matters that are much less consequential than my brothers, our brothers and sisters in Eritrea. Why do I bite my tongue when I have opportunities in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone who does not yet know Christ? Why do I bite my tongue rather than saying, listen, I know the hope of the world. Can I talk about Him with you? I have nowhere near the potential for loss today that our brothers and sisters around the world have. And neither do you even if we boldly speak the name of Christ. Nowhere near the potential for loss today that they do. Yet are we willing to be public and zealous? Are we willing to be faithful? Or are we just not made of the stuff that Daniel was made of? Are we just faithless? Consumed by fear? Would you, would you wrestle with that this morning with me? Because the second question that I need to ask from Daniel chapter 6 is, so how did Daniel do what he did? How did he get up the gumption 
after he knew the edict to still go to his upper room with the windows facing Jerusalem, get down on his knees three times a day and petition his king. How did he do that? Bill spoke from chapter 3 of Daniel a few weeks ago. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, it's meant to, in the structure of Daniel, it's meant to parallel where we are today. It's another story of these three friends of Daniel choosing not to bow down to the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Choosing not to bow down and because of that, suffering the consequences of being sent to the fire. I've often wondered, did those three guys, as they were considering, should we bow down or not? They knew what the consequence would be. Like in Daniel's case, the punishment, the consequence, was part of the edict. This is how you will be punished if you do not obey. They knew they would be thrown into the fiery furnace. I've often wondered, did they meditate on Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2? Do you know it? When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. That was written before those guys decided to go and not bow down. Could it be that they held to God's Word so firmly that they said that might be for us in a very practical way. Now you know from that story they said, if the Lord doesn't save us, He doesn't save us. But they may have seen that verse and said, but that could be us. Let's cling to His Word and see what happens. We entrust ourselves to Him. Did Daniel have a similar text? We don't know. Psalm 21 talks about the lion's mouths being shut. Perhaps he knew Psalm 21. But I think there's an answer to that even closer than Psalm 21. Even more personal, perhaps. Let me tell you a little, bit, a little something about the whole book of Daniel. It's, it's actually written in three parts. Chapter 1 is written in Hebrew. Okay, which, which you would expect. Hebrew, chapter 1, Hebrew, was meant for those exiles that had been taken from Jerusalem and brought to Babylon. Okay, they were Hebrew speakers. That was the case when Daniel and his friends are challenged to, or they are offered the king's food, and Daniel and his friends say, no, we're going to continue to trust in the Lord. That was what one of the what the author wanted to communicate to those early exiles. Trust the Lord. Chapters 8 through 12, the last part of the book, are also written in Hebrew, intended for the exiles who were returning to Jerusalem. They were going back home, where Hebrew would again become the language of the people of God. The thing is, right smack dab in the middle of the book, are chapters 2 through 7, which we've been in for most of this series. And those are written in Aramaic. Written in Aramaic. Aramaic was the language of the empire. These people that were reading 2 through 7 were reading it in the language that they were understanding. This, was, this had become their heart language because a lot of them had either grown up as exiles in Babylon, or they had been born there. This is like second generation immigrants who come to the, come to the States, and though they have connections to their parents' language, this then becomes their cultural milieu. This is what they grow up in, okay? This is what's happening in chapters 2 through 7. It's for us. <laughs> These people were trying to figure out how to live faithful to God among the lions of Babylon, among the difficulties to faith in exile. 
They were trying to figure that out. Many of you have remarked how this series has been so applicable. The reason is, it's a pretty close one-to-one parallel with us as believers. Living as the family of God, the people of God, but in a world that is not yet confessing Him. So as I prepared to preach on chapter 6, I wanted to make sure that we didn't miss something for us in chapter 7, to cut off the series after chapter 6 without finishing out the Aramaic, if you will. Okay. So I started to explore what chapter 7 had. Wondering how they would be, how this, this Daniel and the lion's den saga could apply even more to us. And guess what? The answer to the question is there. The answer to how did Daniel do this is in chapter 7. And while we just talked about the character of Daniel, there's the list. Chapter 7 introduces us to two more characters. Two more characters that help us understand how to live in a land of fear, but walk in faith. Let's look at chapter 7. Verse 1 says this, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Did you see that name? Belshazzar. Didn't we talk about him last week? Last week, we heard about Belshazzar, the final emperor of the Babylonian Empire. A guy who was arrogant. As Bill was talking about, he, he, he took out the chalices that were from the temple and he threw back the wine, basically saying, I'm the true God here. I'm going to use God's chalices and get drunk with them. Arrogance. And then the handwriting on the wall comes. You've been found wanting. You lose your throne today. And that very night, Persia, as they surrounded the gates, came in and the empire flipped to them. So notice this. Chapter 7 is out of chronological order. It comes after Daniel and the lion's den, but Daniel had already experienced these visions before Daniel and the lion's den. You feel me? Are you understanding this here? Chronologically, Daniel had experienced these visions already. And who are the characters we're introduced to? Let me just start to read. Chapter 7, again. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back and the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth that devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns. I considered the horns and behold there came up among them another horn a little one before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Daniel was having a nightmare. Verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, 
and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. The little horn from verse 8. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Who is this next true character that Daniel sees? He sees the Ancient of Days, but what his eyes are focused on is this Son of Man. Is this Son of Man. Verses 1-8, through these are talking about kingdoms. Political rulers. The contraptions of government in our world, in Daniel's world, that could cause lots of consternation, worry, anxiety, political debate and intrigue. Any of that today? And in the middle of all of that, the Ancient of Days comes and sits on the throne. God, the Ancient One, the One from eternity past that has never had a beginning, the Ancient of Days, comes and sits on the throne. And all of a sudden, perspective changes. Because 10,000 times 10,000 are serving Him. And He sits in judgment. The beast is killed. And then this Son of Man descends out of the clouds of heaven. The Son of Man. It's a, it's a term that's used a number of times in the Old Testament. Especially in the book of Ezekiel. Usually, as a term for a human man. Alright? So, we could call each other son of man and be okay with that. But there's a difference here. See, this son of man has qualities of deity. He descends out of the heavens. You and I have never descended out of the heavens. He descends out of the heavens and comes before God without any worry or fear in implied full purity. And He comes before the Father and the Ancient of Days and He is given dominion. Full rule, full power, nothing held back. This is who this Son of Man in Daniel 7 is. He's given this dominion and all peoples, nations, and languages shall serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. So how does Daniel do this? Well, first of all, he sees the Son of Man in this vision. He knows that there is a King coming who will be the King of kings and have dominion over all. And He will be a man who has all the glory and dominion of God Himself. Startling, I would say, to Daniel. 
But then we get introduced to the third character, the third true character of this morning, and it's actually a group of people. Let's look at 7.15. I'll tell you who we're going to meet. They're called the saints of the Most High. You're going to see them mentioned here three or four times. So have your antenna up. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me, as they would me too. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. He wanted interpretation of this vision. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. He said, These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words. He shall speak words against the Most High, and He shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and He shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into His hand for a time, times, and half a time. But, but the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So we see the saints of the Most High. We meet this group of people, this group of true characters. And we see that they will receive the kingdom. It's, it's almost unbelievable to look at verses 17 and 18 where it talks about the four great beasts or the four kingdoms that shall rise out of the earth. That, that goes back to the beginning of chapter 7. And, and you would expect the next thing to be, but the Son of Man receives the kingdom and the dominion. Instead it says, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. But these people, the saints of the Most High, do not get that right away. They do not realize the fullness of that gift from the Ancient of Days until later. Because first, they will be worn out. They will be persecuted. The saints will be persecuted. And then, when the persecution is ended, they will receive the kingdom that is everlasting. So, how did, David, how did Daniel do what he did? What did he know? What did he experience as he considered the lion's den? He believed God and entrusted himself to him. He knew that there is a king who is mightier than this king. 
There is a kingdom that is mightier than this kingdom. This kingdom, though it kill me, will one day be gone. The Son of Man and divinity will rule forever and He, Daniel, along with all of the saints of the Most High, will reign forever with the Son of Man together. So, Daniel, if you remember from the first few verses of chapter 6, Daniel was high up there. He was second in command to Darius. He had power beyond power with the soon-to-come appointment of him being over the whole kingdom. Darius was somehow going to say, Daniel, you got it all, brother. Take the whole kingdom. You're the highest of the presidents. You're over all the satraps. It's all you. Daniel, as he's considering this edict and his faithfulness, doesn't just have his life to lose. He has power, comfort, convenience, wealth, status quo, reputation, respect. These are the things that Daniel has to lose too. If he loses his life, he loses all of those things too. It's all one big ball of wax. But perspective on all of those things changes when you realize this kingdom will fall and all the ball of wax that's wrapped up in it. And there's going to be a day when this king of kings will rule and in some way I'm going to rule with him forever and ever and ever. All of a sudden, his high political position didn't look so ultimate. Instead, the glory of God seen through the rule of the Son of Man and His saints was ultimate. But wait, there's more. We have to see, this is not just a story about Daniel getting rescued from the lion's den. As incredible as that is, I actually don't think it's the lead story here. It's maybe second page news. Because we need to see the fruit of Daniel's faithfulness. Throughout the book of Daniel so far, we've seen God's power proclaimed to the nations. Back in Daniel chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you saw that all of the nations gathered to worship Nebuchadnezzar. The reality is, go back and read it for yourself, that not all of the nations gathered there. This wasn't a huge democratic worship of Nebuchadnezzar where everyone came to Babylon and there are millions upon millions of people bowing to the statue. No. The people of the empire were represented by their satraps. Those satraps made a decision for their people, the culture they represented, to bow down before Nebuchadnezzar. There's representative worship there that we then see play out throughout the rest of Daniel. As Nebuchadnezzar and now here Darius command that all of the nations worship. Did Joe Smith get that word from Nebuchadnezzar? Maybe not. But Joe Smith's satrap got that word. What I want you to see here is that Daniel's act of faith, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, prompts the king to representatively proclaim God's glory to the nations. The nations, every tribe, language, and tongue, hear of God through the pronouncement of the king. Seen and heard because Daniel was faithful. But let me show you this one other thing. God delivers His people 
the chosen people, the Jews, through Daniel 2. This just blew my mind as I was studying this week. Look at chapter 6, verse 28. So I introduce you to Darius. Darius is actually unknown historically. Some call him ahistorical. But here's the thing. Many scholars believe that the reason that Darius is not a separate emperor is because Darius and Cyprus were the same dude. See, this is the, the empire of the Medes and the Persians. Darius, his mom was a Mede. His dad was a Persian. So it's possible that he went by two different names. Look at verse 28 with that in mind. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. That verse can also be translated. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus. Sorry. Rewind. The reign of Darius, who is Cyrus the Persian. Why does that matter? Because in the first year of Cyrus the Persian, according to Ezra chapter 1, Cyrus the Persian received a vision from the Lord telling him, send the Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild my temple. You see historically what could be happening here? Daniel's faithfulness in the lion's den proclaimed the power of God to Darius slash Cyrus in the very same year that then Cyrus sends, send the Jews back to Jerusalem and give them money and all they need to rebuild the temple. In Daniel, in Daniel, the grace of God is proclaimed to all the nations and to the Jews. Through His faithfulness, the people of God are being brought together. That's Daniel. God working in history through a man who was faithful to Him. Let's bring this all together here. Because right now you're wondering, okay, this is all good. I'm, I'm liking the historical ahas. But we're 2,600 years removed. Daniel has ultimate confidence living among lions because he has ultimate... Daniel has ultimate confidence living among lions because he has ultimate confidence in God. Who would send the Son of Man and somehow make people holy enough to reign with Him? It comes down to this clear truth. Jesus Christ is the Son of Man who will reign forever and ever. Everyone who belongs to Jesus will reign with Him forever and ever too. And you're saying, how do you get this from this? Because of this. Daniel had a vision of what is to come. We have more than a vision. We have Jesus Christ, historical God-man who came, lived a perfect life, died and rose again. And we too are waiting for the Son of Man. Who? Yes, the Son of Man. Jesus used Son of Man as His most... How, how can I say it? It was what he preferred to be when he called himself something. He called himself more than anything else the Son of Man. We have more than a vision. We have a historical reality and the Word of God that says there is still a time when the Son of Man will come through the heavens. We, like Daniel, are looking to that day still. Let me just, in, in the book of Mark, Jesus uses the Son of Man in all four Gospels. But let me run through a few of the ways that He calls Himself the Son of Man in the book of Mark. 
He uses it 14 times in that book. I won't read all 14, but here's some keys. In Mark 2.10, right at the beginning, he says, this is as he's healing the paralytic, he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, get up and walk. In Mark chapter 8, it says, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Verse 38, Jesus says Himself, For whoever is ashamed of Me and of My words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. Mark 9.9 9, And as they were coming down the mountain, this is after the transfiguration, Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Mark 9.31, Jesus was teaching His disciples and He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill Him. And when He is killed, after three days, He will rise. Mark 10.45, open up your ears please. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Mark 13.26, And then they will see the Son of Man, hear this, coming in clouds with great power and glory. Hello? Daniel chapter 7. And then in Mark chapter 14, as He's being challenged by the religious leaders, on trial before His death. They ask Him, are you the Son of God? And He says, I am. And, speaking to men who would know Daniel 7 very well, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds in heaven. And at that, they tore their robes and said, blasphemy, blasphemy. And he continued on his road to the cross. We're not Daniel. Can I just say that? We in our sin are captive to our sin. We are deserving of judgment just as God's people, the Israelites, were. We have defamed the name of our God and have turned to our own idols. We have rejected Him. We have been not just faithless, but have put our faith in so many other things. Most notably, ourselves. We need someone to come and set us free. Just as Daniel figuratively died by going down into what should have been his tomb, and the stone was rolled in front of the tomb, and Darius's signet ring, his seal, was set upon the tomb. Are you hearing echoes of Christ? Then Daniel rose up out of the tomb, unharmed by judgment, blameless, entrusting himself to God, who knew the reason for this. Jesus was not unharmed by judgment. Because Jesus went to the cross, as it said here, to give his life as a ransom for many. We hear echoes, whispers of Jesus to come in the story of Daniel, but we see the culmination of salvation, the reality of redemption, the hope of what is to come because Jesus Himself suffered for our sin. He was not unharmed by judgment. He took on the judgment instead and died the death that I should have died. Died the death that you should die. 
so that we would not have to be harmed by judgment. So just as in Daniel, we see Jews and Gentiles rescued by the mighty hand of God, we see it in Jesus ultimately as well. Listen to this. You don't have to turn there. But listen to Revelation chapter 5. There's a seal that cannot be broken until the Lamb of God shows up. A Lamb that had looked like, that looked like He had been slain. And He comes and He takes the scroll and the four living creatures and the 24 elders. Who, by the way, side note, some people believe, I was reading something by Piper not, not too long ago, believe that the 24 elders are symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples. Again, Jew and Gentile brought together as the people of God. The 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. They shall reign on the earth. God's people with their king reigning. Have you considered reigning with Christ before? Have you considered that as your future reality in Him? Again, it's not ultimately about your reign, but what a beautiful, wonderful promise that as, as we see Christ exalted, we in Him reign with Him. And so, here's where this all comes together. The reality is, when we place our faith in Christ, we turn from our sin and we say, I need a Savior to free me. Bring me home, Lord. He welcomes us into Himself. Our new identity is in Christ. And so as He reigns, we reign. And it's not just a future reality, it's a reality that is true here and now too. We won't see it in its final ultimate completion until Christ comes back. But brothers and sisters, we undersell the reality of our identity in Christ. Our union with Him. The reality of His reign in our lives and how He is working that out in us. So let me just say this. I told you before, we are not Daniel. This is true. But Daniel was a whisper of Christ. And through repentance and faith in Christ, Christ brings us into Himself Fills us, fills us with His Spirit so that we can then look back at Daniel and say, by God's grace, God, make me Daniel. Because Daniel lived a Christ-like life. So we should look at these qualities and say, Lord, how would You work these out in my life? Through faith in You, Jesus, I now have the promise of Your Spirit living inside me. That doesn't stop. But would you pray, Lord, fill me with your Spirit. Let me not walk in the flesh this week, but fill me with your Spirit. When you're targeted in conspiracy, when you feel the internal pressures of your job, it's not necessarily a, a top-down thing, but you're just like, man, my coworkers, what are they doing to me? They're persecuting me. That might be the case. When you're targeted in conspiracy, remember that you will reign. Are you blameless in public and faithful in private? I would just challenge you to think about this. We all walk different, different places in a different, 
into different people groups throughout the week? Are you blameless in public and faithful in private? What does your life look like when no one else is watching? It is, is it an excellent life in the Spirit? Are you saying, Lord, dig down deep inside of me into this faithful heart, faithless heart and root out anything that is against you? And then let that be seen outside of me. Do your coworkers know that you're a Christian? Or are you just trusting the memes that you post? You know what I'm saying? You say, well, it's complicated. It was complicated for Daniel. By his grace, would, would you ask him for new opportunities in your office? Perhaps it's not to be like Bible banging in your office. But I would, I would challenge you with this. Daniel wasn't apparently Bible banging. But he lived with such integrity, publicly and privately, that those two other presidents and all those satraps knew what he was about. They knew who he served. And he did what is one of the most radical things you can do when confronting other kingdoms. He bowed his head to another king. In spite of the law. Maybe you just need to pray when you get lunch. What, what are you doing? They might ask you later. They might ask you right then, depending on what your coworkers are like. Would you bow your head? Yes, King. Today's your day, even in this lunchroom, even at this table. Pretty radical. It can be pretty radical. When you're entrapped, when you're trapped, you struggle. Uh, this this was talking about like application for us. Daniel, consider the power that he had. He could have used every means necessary. He was the second most powerful dude in the kingdom. Do you think he didn't have some sway that could have somehow extricated himself from this? But instead, as Christ did in Second Peter, Peter tells us, Jesus did not revile. He did not fight back. He entrusted himself to the Lord. Daniel did. Christ entrusted himself to the Lord. This does not mean that you should never push for justice in your office. But when you feel like you're being railroaded, what's your first reaction? Is it, Lord, help me understand this? Help me not fight back. Help me walk through this time in grace. Or is it get your defenses up? Block the, block the jabs and come back with your own. That's not what Jesus did. Let me just, one more thing I've been thinking about a little bit. It's interesting how Daniel's private life was exposed by his windows. So what he did privately was easily seen publicly. We have an interesting thing these days called social media that kind of does the same thing. You're privately, and then all of a sudden it's publicly being seen. I would just challenge you, consider your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ when you post. Consider their reputations. Consider perhaps even differing political persuasions that are not ultimate because our King and His reign are ultimate. So you could have a whole lot, you could have very differing views on the wall, for instance. And we're sitting here as brothers and sisters. And guess what? There will be a day when any wall or lack of wall will be in Distant history. But you'll be with your brother and sister reigning with Christ. We look forward to the day when we can rejoice in our resurrection unharmed in judgment because by faith we have entrusted 
ourselves to God and we reign with Him victoriously. Let's pray. Oh Jesus, we look forward to that day and we are a stumbling, often fearful and faithless people. Oh God, we thank You that we are not depending on a system. We're not depending on, okay, this is what i got to do now to make this true of my life. Lord, You are the Son of Man intimately who knows what it means to walk in our skin. Who knows what it means to walk full of the Spirit in total wisdom, yet face every temptation known to man. So we would ask You, God, boldly as we come before Your throne this morning, would the reality of Your victory over death and Your coming return change our hearts? Prompt us when we're in the midst of it in our office or the classroom or in our, in our homes, when we just don't know which way our hearts are turning, oh God, turn our hearts to You. Give us the faith to boldly ask You to intervene even there and then. Still our fearful hearts. Instill faith in us. And give us grace to walk with You this week. In Your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen.